Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hi everyone and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, host of the Mindful Dietitian and director also of a business remarkably of the same name. Would you believe it? I'm very, very creative. Well, big exhale. Goodness, it is now July 2019 and we are over halfway through this year. Uh, I don't even know where to start about thinking about the first half of this year, let alone what's still to come. But uh, I think without getting uh, a little overwhelmed with the whole thing, it's also super exciting as we come together and get to know each other a lot more in, in our little community and, um, and do amazing work in the world. So speaking of amazing work, uh, today's guest is Deb Benfield, who is a colleague of mine. She's a registered dietitian and also a yoga teacher from the US. And Deb is an amazing leader in our field and, and somebody who many of you may be familiar with and others less so. Deb is one of those incredible people that goes about her business in a very humble, way and yet what I know of Deb or what I have come to know of Deb is that she is fierce and grounded and so 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 wise so it was such a pleasure to speak with Deb recently and it's a great pleasure to bring you our conversation. So I just wanted to tell you a little bit about Deb before we launch on in. So Deb describes herself as not only a nutrition therapist, but also a freedom fighter. Yes, a recovery coach and yoga teacher on a mission for all to know all bodies are good bodies. Deb is really passionate about partnering with her clients and students to develop ease around food, eating and body image, reclaim the pleasure of eating again, and choose foods that allow a balance of joy, satisfaction and well-being. I know Deb is is really passionate about compassion and ways to cultivate a way of eating that is both embodied and intentional. And Deb feels really also passionate about nourishing ourselves in ways that help us to feel vital and have energy for all the ways we can play. Uh, so Deb also provides body liberation yoga classes and workshops, embodied eating groups and workshops, and worksite wellness programs with a health at every size perspective. Deb is an active member member of the eating disorder treatment team at Wake Forest University and is the founder of the Winston-Salem Eating Disorder Coalition. In terms of yoga, Deb completed her yoga teacher training in 2012 with Anna Guest-Jelly of Curvy Yoga, somebody who I'm a big fan of, and she specializes in modifying yoga for all bodies. Deb also completed levels one and two of presence-based yoga training with Doug Silsby in 2017. 
So here, Deb and I really dive into some really incredible topics, including uh, the intersections of yoga and dietetic practice, um, embodiment. So this is following on from uh, the previous podcast with Anna Lutz, where we also talked about um, somatic therapy and, and uh, the intersections of somatics and, and nutrition and dietetics, which I found completely fascinating. It's a, it's a real interest area of mine, and luckily it is for Deb too. So we kind of launch off into that as well. Um, one aspect of care that Deb is really interested in is uh, is midlife and the experiences around midlife and how we can really honour the experience particularly of women um, and you will hear some interesting sharing of I discovered a new phrase in this podcast which um, some of you will be really familiar with and completely rolling your eyes at me having never heard of this um, so you'll know you will know the phrase when you hear it. It's probably about three quarters of the way through um, when I have a particular reaction to the way Deb talks about uh, the changing experience of women's bodies and the way that is this is medicalized and pathologized. Uh, so I hope you really enjoy this episode. Um, Deb is just one of my very, very favorite, favorite people. She, as I said, she is um, fierce and yet so grounded and incredibly knowledgeable and generous too. So it was a great pleasure to speak with Deb recently and I hope you really enjoyed this episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Thanks for being here. Hey Deb, how wonderful co to connect with you. Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Thank you for having me, Fee. I'm very excited. Lots to talk about. Lots to talk about, my goodness. Yeah. So you and I have been um, connected for quite a number of years now, and unbelievably, this is one of the first times that we've ever been able to talk um, kind of sort of in person, really, even though we are literally, you know, across the other <laughs> side of the world, which seems unbelievable to me. I know, it's really bizarre, and I love everything about it. I know. Thank you, Internet, for some things, and maybe not things for others, That's but, you know. True. That's true. Mm, yeah. I'm grateful right now. In this moment, I send out gratitude. <laughs> yes. I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, so, Deb, you've had a really interesting career trajectory. So, would you mind sharing with us a little bit about, um, you know, the, the weaving and wending of your career to date and then a little bit about what you're up to now? That's a wonderful way to say it, weaving and winding. I don't know if that's exactly what you said, but that's the way I see it. My undergrad was a double major in um, religion and psychology. And oh, wow. Yeah. So I didn't start out in the sciences, even though I had a love for science. So I went out in the world and tried some things that came back around and got my master's in nutrition and took all, you know, the biochem and all that fun stuff. And so I have done, I think, just about everything a dietitian can do. I started out in your classic, you know, hospital setting and then began to work in a teaching hospital, uh, Wake Forest University School of Medicine. And I've tried several different things there, working with the residents and was also on faculty at the PA program. So I've done a lot of teaching, but at the same time, I was building a private practice. And very soon in my work with patients, I started connecting to therapists because I was 
very aware of the whole person perspective that I was having with patients and knowing that just telling something what to eat was very complicated and somewhat shaming sometimes. So I really was very fortunate in that I started getting supervision from a therapist who was specialized in eating disorders. And so it all happened very early in my career. And I'm very grateful because it's a perfect fit for me. So over time, I've developed a full-time private practice. And about the time that my children left the nest and I had a little bit more flexibility, I decided to go be a yoga teacher. So I went to, um, actually, I'll just take a minute and say that I interviewed different teachers for about a year because I really found the relationship that you have with your teacher to be pretty sacred. So I was very intentional about who I learned with. And I'm also grateful that I learned with Anna guest jelly. Oh, the, wow. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I did my training with her. Um, so I became a yoga teacher and a certified curvy yoga teacher all at the same time. So I stand on the shoulders of Anna guest jelly and another one of my, most powerful teachers was Michael Stone. Um, I went to many workshops with Michael and he passed away last year, I believe a little bit more than a year ago. So I continue to read and listen to his podcasts and highly recommend his teachings. So now I've integrated yoga into my private practice and pretty thoroughly I do groups and classes and workshops and like to integrate it into sessions whenever I can. Oh, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. Yes, we absolutely <laughs> will. I'll be so curious to ask you more about how you do that and a little bit about maybe the frameworks that you call upon and any particular, you know, learning points that you've had around, you know, integrating integrating yoga into your dietetic practice. Because actually, um, probably unsurprisingly a really beautiful match oh yes it's it's very I will not take a lot of time with this but I was in my own yoga practice and of course I had been teaching intuitive eating to my clients for you know probably 15 years at the point that I was in my own yoga class and had this bizarre experience that was a true like interoceptive connection mm-hmm. because my teacher was so wonderful and that's Sydney who's McGee if anybody is in North Carolina she's an amazing teacher here in Winston-Salem and she there was something about the way that she was teaching that class that it just like bells went off and I went up and talked to her and said I really want you to come teach in some of my workshops and classes. And so we worked together for a long time before I decided to do my own training because it just became very clear to me that what you're experiencing in yoga is what you're inviting in intuitive eating process. You're trying to encourage an, you know, an internal awareness following internal cues. And that is, I didn't have the language of interoception, <laughs> I didn't know what I, was, what I was experiencing, but now I realize that's what was happening. And it's been, I think it's been incredibly helpful for my, my clients and patients. 
and students. Yeah, that's absolutely wonderful to hear. And, you know, lots of um, our colleagues who are listening will, you know, understand um, the, the interreceptive kind of nature of intuitive eating and the way that that part of that, the way that that part of all the principles is woven throughout this particular framework. And I wonder, Deb, in what way do you think that maybe, um, you know, uh, we as dietitians can kind of build additional skills if we're not yoga teachers and we're not, you know, mindfulness-based practitioners, for example, what are ways do you think that we can build some awareness, not only cognitive awareness through, you know, reading and podcasts, et cetera, et cetera, but how do you feel like we can build skills and awareness in, um, in the interoceptive nature and the feeling into the body that we can then go and share with clients? Because it's a pretty critical aspect of our work. It's not as simple as, you know, do you feel hungry now? Do you feel full now? Which is often where I notice our colleagues kind of, they start and stop right there. What you're really speaking to there is developing this kind of, this interoceptive awareness that builds upon this kind of framework of maybe hunger and fullness. So what would you, how would you kind of build those skills, do you think? I feel like, can you hold that question for just one second? Because I feel like I have to say one more thing about that. I am somewhat concerned right now about how easily we launch into talking about hunger and fullness with our clients who may indeed probably very likely have had a trauma experience, if not chronic dieting, which is also traumatic an experience of being um, marginalized, um, experiencing weight stigma. There's so many things that likely have contributed to an inability to feel hunger and fullness or insatisfaction. So I try not to jump right into expecting hunger and fullness. I ask a lot of preliminary questions before I get to that. So I just want to say, sometimes I feel like we further shame clients in assuming that they're going to be able to answer the question about hunger and fullness in a, in a session, instead of giving them some space about articulating what they do sense in their bodies. And I, of course, have had so many clients tell me they can't sense anything, that they have no awareness and there are some clients no matter how long I work with them they never are able to and that's because of their trauma history hmm. yeah I love that thank you so much Deb for overting that because um, obviously with the rise of non-diet approaches and intuitive eating as well intentioned as we may be um, you know kind of starting and stopping with hungerfulness and satiety kind of cues is often not only missing the mark but as you just said you know it might be further perpetuating harm which we do not want to be doing no i think i think being very gentle as you approach and just being very curious i mean if you i know that you interviewed anna lots maybe your last was it your last mm -hmm. podcast? Yes. Mm -hmm. if, if your listeners heard Anna's um, beautiful articulation of somatic process, mm -hmm. her conversation ar around the window of tolerance, 
I feel like if you yourself as a provider have your own attunement to your own body and therefore your you know able your ability to resonate with your client across from you if if you can invite that attunement you can see where their window of tolerance is or where they are and many times I have noticed when I start talking about hunger and fullness I can sense you know an increase in anxiety and I get lots of information about the fact that this is not such an easy conversation to have for my client. So to maybe, you know, back up and check in and check in with myself and with them and notice like what's going on. Is that, is that a hard conversation to have? And for many people, they've had, you know, childhoods where they didn't have access to food or they did, they were put on diets. So many reasons why, Hunger is not an easy thing to talk about, or perhaps even fullness. Mm, so, yeah. so many little tiny um, moments that we'll miss if we're just driving through that conversation and if we slow down, and that's what the somatic processing is about, is slowing down. And this brings me to my answer to your question, which is how can our colleagues develop what yoga brings and that is with slowing down yourself mm. and having your own awareness of your what's going on with your own breath and therefore noticing what's going on with your clients breath and their body and what you know being curious about what's going on with them in a much more slow you know attentive manner and I think that kind of curiosity develops the safety that our clients need to feel in sessions so that they can do well so they can trust us mm -hmm. it's going to take so much safety and trust for our clients to be able to step into the change that we're asking them to step into i mean that's our entire work is to develop trust and change so that slow, steady, small steps that feel scary, change feels scary. And if we don't spend time building that base and having more of a somatic awareness of ourselves and slowing down and checking in with our clients, I mean, that is yoga. That is, that is yoga in the session is being connected to body, being connected to breath and non-judgment. Mm. in my world do you yes no I concur with you one thousand million <laughs> percent and it's yeah. interesting and it's interesting Deb that you know there are times when I wonder if the very structures and hierarchies and um, uh, you know systems that we aim to dismantle I sometimes wonder if we perpetuate that ourselves so things like for example sure. perfectionism or all or nothing mm -hmm. thinking or you know do 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 rather than being mm -hmm. or you know being very fast-paced being much mm -hmm. more yang than yin for example mm -hmm. um, you know there's there's lots of ways that that we can actually really unintentionally perpetuate the very systems that we're aiming to dismantle mm -hmm. and when you were speaking then, it really reminded me 
of the importance of us doing our own work because being able to attune to our client, I'd be really interested in your thoughts on this, is limited by our ability to attune to ourselves. Amen. <laughs> I think, you know, the first invitation that I have for our colleagues is to have their own curiosity about themselves, their own, do their own work around their body, do their own work around food judgment. I mean, I'm hoping that most of the people that are listening to you already have that started in their lives but maybe not I, I don't know if there's ever an end to that process anyway I mean it's ever evolving you this is like complicit prejudice right you've become aware of yet another little place that you feel perfectionistic or judgmental about yourself I can certainly say that I've evolved from like when you learn intuitive eating you think that is the way <laughs> and you become dogmatic again right Mm -hmm. just as dogmatic as everything else so really softening I did um, some coaching training and that was probably the best thing that I ever did outside of the yoga training that I've done and the bulk of what I got in that practice was you know recording myself doing my work and listening to it and getting coaching around what I was offering and the number one issue that I had was you know, not being curious enough and thinking mm -hmm. that I knew already. And I think that is part of what you were speaking to, that perpetuating the, the wellness industry by thinking that we're experts, by thinking that we know, mm -hmm. and reminding yourself and your client that they are the expert of their bodies, that you have some knowledge to offer, and it doesn't come anywhere close to the knowledge that they have about their own lived experience, their own bodily sensation, their own response and reaction. So to try to drop out of, yeah, being the one who knows and staying curious, does that is a practice. Yes, it is. <laughs> no, it is, absolutely, because it, it's, it's kind of um, it pressing into that edge of um, having your own back you know, and bolstering our sense of, you know, or bolstering our groundedness in any one moment, whilst at the same time having a sense of lightness and curiosity. Um, oh, yeah. And, and openness. So it's, there's, there's so much there, isn't there, around the holding, the holding of both a, a kind and a grounded space. A kind might be a little lighter, mm -hmm. grounded may feel a little bit, you know, um, mm -hmm. more. I mean, I'm using my hands here. I, I'm very, um, mm -hmm. I, I, I use my hands a lot <laughs> when I'm, you know, ex explaining things, you know, this kind of um, the, the t I suppose the push and the pull, the tension, the balance, the, and everything that yoga teaches us in terms of, mm -hmm. in terms of how to hold space both for ourselves and mm -hmm. for others too. Mm -hmm. I love that. I, I many times use analogies from nature when I'm teaching and the concept of the way a bird flies when you notice that they are efforting when they flap their wings and then the way they glide that that balance between effort and grace is the way I speak about it and doing that in session you know there's some like 
fact of the matter work and then there's some levity around some humor and mm-hmm. and there's some some space perhaps some quiet some curiosity openness that creates so it's i agree with you 100 percent. how you how can you find a place where there's a little bit of levity and some groundedness mm-hmm. in in your presence and in your session yeah. so another way that yoga shows up Yet another way. It's not. It's not all about the um, the complex poses. (laughs) No, ma'am. Oh Oh, my goodness! I many times say, if you're doing a practice where you're opening um, a spot like your hips, Mm -hmm. and you're staying with your breath, and you're dropping your judgment, that is an intense practice. That is an intense practice. Oh yeah. (laughs) Definitely. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure how you feel, Deb, but some of the most um, quote unquote kind of difficult or challenging or intense practices are the ones which really invite us to turn in and to really press against our edges, you know, and that may or may not be effortful in physically. But goodness, you know, really noticing where we are pressing or where we're holding is, oh my goodness, it's so interesting. So revealing and that can be very vulnerable for us Mm -hmm. that that allowing that another one of my phrases that my students hear several times a class is soften your striving and i and i say that to myself as i go through my day love that (laughs) soften your striving and just be yeah sometimes just receiving is the hardest isn't it we were so accustomed to providing and doing that just receiving the gift of your breath or rest yeah Mm, i do love yoga (laughs) yes well there's so many aspects to it that i think are lost within you know asana just the one of the limbs um Mm -hmm. so for those of you i i hope i um explain this okay i'm a more recent yogi than you deb but um, just to kind of take us back a little, you know, um, um, Patanjali was an, an ancient, one of the first, arguably the first kind of yogi, I suppose you would say. And um, Patanjali wrote um, what's called the Yoga Sutras. And then there are eight limbs of yoga as written by Patanjali. And only one of the eight is called asana. And that is the physical yes. practice, which is, you know, the, yes. what we what we see on a mat. Not not always on a mat, but you know, it's it's the physical practice: a mat, a chair, um, a, a room, a space, mm-hmm. <laughs> however it turns up. And then the um, the other limbs. One one is completely devoted to breath. Yes, one of the hardest, I would say. <laughs> yes, meditation. Mm-hmm. So many things that get left out or forgotten about that's it exactly and ethics so, values etc et oh yes mm-hmm. yeah. it's a way of living mm-hmm. yes i don't know if you want to get into the dark side of yoga i feel myself thinking about that i don't know <laughs> <laughs> oh there are so many dark sides of yoga more than more than happy to go i think it's really interesting to to you know, um, to think about or to consider how we, how we now name, quote unquote, yoga, and we see it as this, you know, amazing, enlightened, you know, kind of way of practicing and living in the world. But there is, 
you know, there are dark sides as well. So yeah, more than happy. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. Deb, what are your thoughts? Well, I think it's been co-opted just like everything else has been and it's for sale and it's part of the patriarchy and it's part of, of diet culture in a lot of places an overwhelming number of places in my community. So I have to be very careful. I can't just recommend yoga. I have to be very, very careful in the particular studio or teacher or class that I recommend for my clients. I think there's an awful lot of cleanses and detoxes and, you know, body shame, food shame that happens in a yoga studio or in a yoga class. That's mm. the, as you know, when you walk into a yoga class, the story that a student has about their teacher is that they're enlightened and, you know, there's so much reverence. There's so much power that a yoga teacher has. And if they have their own body issues or their own food hangups and they start to talk about that in a class, it's very triggering, not to mention the other students in the class. Mm -hmm. So I'm very careful. Yeah. There was a wonderful new podcast that I'm very excited about that you probably know about called Yoga is Dead. Oh, I just came across it. I can't wait to dig in. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> oh, yes. I think you will absolutely love it. I listened to the first one twice, and I started listening to the second one this morning. Sorry. I haven't, I haven't finished it. There's an awful lot. I went to their resource page. I read all the articles. There's so much. They have done a great job. So shout out to Yoga is Dead. Sorry. <laughs> no. We want to. Oh, of course, we white women killed yoga. I mean, white women right. killed yoga. Mm -hmm. And we want to elevate people who are doing work, especially really amazing work that is not only relevant for us as practitioners and human beings, but then also um, speaks to the, uh, to the way in which it's been co-opted by the hierarchy, you know, and patriarchy, everything that, um, mm -hmm. you know, creates a, a false value of bodies. Yes, it's, it's, you know, I think it's multifaceted like many things are, but the visual that people have when they think of yoga is a very thin, white, likely blonde woman in a very, you know, intense pose. And that's very um, uninviting and off-putting to the majority of well, all of us. So... That's why I, I learned with Anna, because it's all about self-compassion and all bodies are welcome and trying to make everything accessible no matter what the body that you're working with is all about. So, yeah, there's a lot to talk about about the dark side. I don't know if you want to go there. <laughs> yeah. I'm very, very awake to that, and I am thrilled that this podcast is out there. It's right on time. Yeah, that that's amazing. Can't that wait. That's a great job. Yeah. So maybe maybe what we could do is is you know um, if any uh, people who are listening are really interested in the work of people who are doing much more intersectional yoga that's really that yes. really much more trauma informed and suitable for a wide a wide wider audience. If people are interested in you know what does trauma informed yoga look like sound like how can I find somebody for myself for my clients? So. Um, 
okay, let's think about, okay, this is one person who I've started following over the past six months or so who I find absolutely both hilarious and spot on. Do you follow Colin Hall on Instagram? I have, yes. <laughs> okay, he is hilarious, really good and calls nice out. Have, it's nice to have humour. <laughs> I know, all the bullshit. He yes, calls it all yeah. all out. So Colin Hall, um, Diane Bondi, one of my favourite people yeah. in the whole universe, Amber Khans from Body Positive uh, Yoga, um, uh, um, Anna Guest Jelly, um, yes. if you're Australian, Sarah Harry, um, who wrote Fat Yoga, um, yes. Jessamine Stanley. Who are some yeah. of your faves? Well, I wanted to do a, a special shout out to Michelle Cassandra Johnson, who has written a book called Skill in Action. She is about um, social justice and how yoga and all of the, the teachings can be applied to social justice. So I think she's worth a read and a follow. She's written a book and it's a very small but dense little books called skill in action oh that's beautiful and i think that's the name of her um instagram account as well yeah i believe so i believe so yeah. what i'll do is i'll collate everything we've spoken about and and put links in our in our notes so that people can that's just go great. straight there no that's that's wonderful i'm sure we've missed people but you know um Oops, that's a lot. Of yeah, a lot that's of not too yeah. bad. Yeah, that's not too bad. That's pretty good. Um, so uh, I'm curious, Deb, you know, what do you think for, for our colleagues who would like to um, recommend some adjunct practice to somebody's dietetic work or whether they're getting some therapy, um, you know, what are some of the top um, the top things that we need to be looking out for in terms of a, a safe as possible class to recommend for our clients? What are we actually looking out for? I think, I think you need to go to the class. I mean, I'm not comfortable until I go to the class. I do not like a studio with mirrors. I think it's pretty impossible to do the work that you need to do to develop interoception if you're looking at yourself in a mirror mm -hmm. so that's one of the places that I look I think if you can find a studio that offers um, classes for all sizes if you may even want to look at the actual teachers to see if there is any diversity within the teachers there that you want to find possible age gender non-gender and of course, size, diversity. And I, I know this is asking a lot. This is a rare find, actually. Mm -hmm. I think maybe in larger cities, that would not be such a difficult thing to find. But, And I would look to see if there's detoxing and juicing for sale. Mm, yes. So there's a bit of work on our behalf, which absolutely needs yes. to be done. Mm -hmm. Yes. There is one studio in my community that um, I wanted to teach. I just was considering teaching there, offering a workshop actually, and I went <laughs> and there were all these really tiny mannequins in the window with a little boutique in the front with, you know, I won't say any names for brands, but you know, and 
$150 yoga pants or something? (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) And I, I talked to them and said, are you willing to have some mannequins of size? And you know what just happened, you know, with that just last week with the mannequin of size. I mean, she looked at me like I'd lost my mind. Like there's no such thing as a mannequin of size. I was like, I just can't, I just can't teach here. Mm -hmm. I just can't. People are going to have to walk by this, the same old, same old, yeah, can't do it. So it's hard to find. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What would you say you're looking for? Hmm. Um, I think, I mean, you, you definitely listed everything I was thinking about and being able to make personal recommendations. Usually what I find is that the teacher um, is usually more important than, for example, the style yeah. or the maybe the lineage or the um, the type of class it is. And sometimes, depending on how accessible yoga is, like if you're in a small town and there's only two studios and both of them are completely immersed in diet culture crap, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. they've got a good teacher there, mm-hmm. I would spend some time speaking with my client mm-hmm. about maybe what to expect in terms of walking into the studio um, and I would be um, connecting with the teacher uh, right mm-hmm. up front and yes. um, often teachers who've done um, specific trauma-informed training and if mm-hmm. they make that explicit, um, for me, uh, I find that uh, well, somewhat reassuring because they have, um, they, ha- they uh, quote unquote should kind of um, understand about things like unsolicited touch, um, mm-hmm. you know, offering space, um, mm-hmm. instructions and cues being invitational um, and, 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 you know, they're highly likely to be providing an environment where, a variety of bodies will be welcome. Now, in saying that, I don't think there's any kind of foolproof um, methodology with with choosing a class. And and sometimes, um, you know, walking in the door is the hardest thing because of the way it's all been set up. Yes. I think, you know, you can get a feel for the diversity and therefore um, a person feeling safe in a space pretty quickly. I also think there's some amazing things online. Yeah. And I mean, Anna Gastelli's Curvy Yoga is beautiful. What she has online is very, very supportive. And, you know, it's a monthly fee, very reasonable. I don't know. Um, Diana Bondi used to, I don't know, does she still have an online offering? She does, yes, and um, Sarah Harry does our um, our Australian fat yoga guru. <laughs> and Jasmine Stanley does. Jasmine Stanley has her own app now, Underbelly. Is she fantastic? Yeah. So there's a lot available without having to go to a yoga studio if you want to feel more comfortable before you go to a studio. Oh, I think that's a huge advantage. Yeah. And I think even our colleagues might want to check those things out. Definitely. Well, it's, if it's, if it's more accessible online and you don't necessarily have to attend a studio or a class, because Mm -hmm. sometimes it's not even possible with these studios to just attend one class. Often you're signing up, signing up for this or you're signing up for that. Um, But for us 
you know, being able to do the work. It's like, it's, it's not dissimilar to us referring to um, another specialist, whether it's a psychologist, a psychiatrist, um, a, a physiotherapist. We want to check them out first. I want to go to the class and, and they're just, it's also expensive. Mm-hmm. So the, the classes that are online or on an app are much, much, much more reasonably priced. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's another that's just another venue that's available. Which, and I'm so grateful for that. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. Yeah, yeah, it is a big deal for sure. Thank you so much, Deb, for, you know, um, for being willing to kind of dive into all the yoga space and what you've learned. Um, if you don't mind me looping back just a little, at the, towards the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned supervision and being supervised by a, an eating disorder psychologist, which it, it felt yes. in the way that you expressed that, that was quite a formative moment for you in terms oh, yes. of, yeah. So I'm curious about your experience with, uh, with supervision in general and your, uh, and throughout your career and, you know, what your thoughts are around the importance of supervision. I think it's essential. If you're going to work with eating disorders, I've, or maybe I, since that's what I do, maybe it's also true for other things, but our clients, I think are sensitive and complicated and this is also very hard work. I, I supervise two associates and there are a lot of therapists in town who call me up for consults. And of course I, I share my clients with therapists that I'm on the phone with and we are constantly saying, thank God we have each other because this is very hard work. And if you're in private practice, that's, you know, you're on your own so much of the time. It's really very important to, to talk through these cases that you either feel stuck or you feel like things are like there's some transference, counter-transference issues, which I think happens a lot in our work. Or maybe you have your own body issues that are coming up. I've had people talk to me about that as well. So I think, I think supervision is essential. Mm. I obviously have a strong feeling about it. Well, I, I would, you know, make no hesitation in saying I, I share those feelings with you. You know, one of the things that, that I personally have found, Deb, my experience has been that I feel like it's really bolstered my sense of capacity. So, um, you know, I'm less likely to reach that, that edge, which we, you know, have, have colloquially known as burnout. Um, I'm much more able to attune to my own needs mm-hmm. and to be responsive to them because it's one thing to attune and it's a totally another thing to be responsive to. So I, mm-hmm. I wonder, I wonder your thoughts on that. You know, I feel like sometimes that's the, the main thing that is offered in supervision is, you know, um, improving our capacity to do the work that we want to do in the world. That's interesting. I think I've been talking a lot to colleagues about this because I feel kind of like an elder at this point. (laughs) And I've done a lot of different kinds of strategies to keep myself from having burnout, especially compassion burnout. I don't know if you know Joan Halifax, but she's um, a Buddhist teacher who talks a lot about compassion burnout. And there are all sorts of visuals that I use 
to keep myself there's like a buddhist principle where you feel things but you don't hold things you let things come into your heart and then pass through and i think that's one thing that i do a lot the other is i actually visualize for some of my clients i prepare myself and visualize a bowl that i have in my lap that i'm letting um their feelings enter into and then when they leave i you know visualize myself emptying the bowl so that I'm not carrying it. I think we just can't carry um, all the feelings that we, all the pain that's in front of us, all the anxiety and, and fear that's in front of us in session. So being able to process that, maybe that would be in supervision, maybe that would be in your own yoga practice, your own breath work, you know, just literally shaking it off between clients and taking a breath and ground. That's something I am. I have come to be very disciplined about doing. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like that's really improved your longevity and capacity? Well, I shock myself, and I never feel tired. I I don't I don't feel tired. I feel emotionally overwhelmed sometimes by the end of a week, but I don't feel tired. It's really interesting. That is really interesting. Would you ascribe at least a decent portion of that to the, to the, um, to your practice, to the commitment, commitment of practice? Well, I have to confess that I kind of have it made right now. I my kids are gone, and I have a garden and a yoga practice and a sweet doggy and great friends. <laughs> you know, I don't have other additional stressors. I'm kind of in a sweet spot right now. So um, I think that's probably a privilege, isn't it? That's just another privilege that I should name. I added to my long list of all the privileges that I name is that, you know, I come home and it's a bit of a sanctuary. So I get to restore. Yeah, that's lovely. And, and also that for you, Deb, that hasn't always been the case. You know, you raised, oh, no. you raised your kids. Yes. And, you know, you've you've been there, done that. (laughs) Yes, yes. And I was not a yoga teacher then. And, Mm. you know, it was a very different time, very different time. I don't think I was nearly as present and attuned during that time. I can tell you that because that, that was before, you know, I learned so much through my coaching and my yoga teacher training. I know we all just continue to evolve and grow if we're interested. Mm-hmm. in doing that and I am rather devoted so I I do think I am at a time in my life that I have more to offer my clients than ever before mm-hmm. I apologize to all my previous clients <laughs> no well you know well what what a gift to your current clients and it would be remiss of me not to offer you that you know as evidenced by your adult now adult kids you absolutely Mm -hmm. did what you could with what you had the capacity Mm -hmm. for and it Mm -hmm. it seems like they're okay (laughs) and a lot of previous guys they're okay because they were doing what they could you were doing what you could and so you just so i'll offer myself some self-compassion yeah yeah there you go i often you know it's so i actually 
kind of giggle to myself in, I know this sounds like a, like a little twisted, but I think, you know, even within my first 12 months, I was literally thrust into eating disorders because I needed a job. I knew nothing. I was literally going from a two hour one-off lecture in my postgraduate study, which was focused on inpatient adolescents. These were not the people I was seeing in this um, outpatient program. And, um, you know, I don't know what I said. I've got no idea what I did. I, I've got no idea, but I, I don't, I, you know, I did what I could with very little, I would hate to think I'd, oh my goodness, I need to go back and just, yes, like you say, offer yourself compassion for everything that you were not aware of. But you know, there's a lot of research that says it's not the skills, it's like the relationship. Mm-hmm. It's the, the relationship and the presence that you have with your, I, I really do feel like that the healing takes place in relationship. So maybe you were, you were just your, your presence was more healing than you realize. Yeah, my bumbling maybe (laughs) bumbling around trying my best i'm sure you were great (laughs) well it's it is interesting because you know what you just named now you know that our presence is the most you know uh, and and research does seem to support this that our presence is is seems to be the most important element Mm. for healing and you know just to loop us back to a previous section of our conversation and that is the presence not only that we offer others, but then the presence that we offer ourselves as well. Um, and that I think often as, um, you know, as, as helping practitioners, I suppose, or in the service of others, we really neglect to, um, you know, to, to foster and um, cultivate that sense of presence with ourselves because we're so busy, you know, thinking what does right. this client need? What does this person need? What does my provider expect? Blah, blah, blah. Hmm. I think this is where our practice comes to play. We have, I mean, this is, this is where our own personal practice shows up. I mean, having especially a, a somatic connection. I talk to my clients a lot about feeling their feet and then finding their breath. And not everybody can do that. It may be, you know, feeling what you're holding in your hands Feet and hands seem to not carry so much judgment, so those are easier places to start with people connecting to their bodies. But I try to do that myself when, when I'm interrupted, when my phone dings or between clients. If I'm in a stoplight, you know, to try to feel my where I'm making contact with the earth and taking a breath. It's, we have to build in ways to practice. That's mm-hmm. the only way we can do that. Yeah, so we can bring it. it in no matter how busy we are. That's yeah, that's exactly right. And 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 practicing in moments where it feels much more accessible. And um thank you, neuroscience. Now we're understanding that if we're able to practice um attunement and presence and being with our experience in moments that are kind of low um low risk or low intensity, then we're more able to access that in right. moments that are a little higher intensity. Right. I was a, a whitewater kayaker, and I tell the story that you have to learn how to roll your boat when you are in a pool. You can't learn in the rapids. <laughs> you right. have to learn where where 
you know that you're trusted and you have some control over the circumstances so that you can develop, you know, an actual skill set and then you take it to the rapids. Same thing for mindful eating. You can't learn how to do mindful eating at Thanksgiving around all your family. You have to learn that, like set aside an afternoon snack and practice that and then slowly put yourself in the rapids. So I love practice, that. practice, practice. I love that analogy. Okay. Um, may, I, may I borrow that analogy, Deb? Oh, of course. Of course. I love that one because, uh, I mean, I think, you know, drawing our analogies from something that's something that's relatable and, as you say, you know, um, for you, nature, you use a lot of nature. Um, it's why I actually, I really love the work of Anita Johnson who uses a lot of metaphor yeah. and story. Yeah. It just yes. feels so relatable. Yes. Yeah, we all know about the log, the log stories. The log is famous. <laughs> Best. Yes. <laughs> it is. It's incredible. Okay. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, Deb, I was wondering if it feels okay to you if we shift gears slightly. Sure. Thank you. Um, so because you were um, expressing to me a short time ago that you've developed a, a little bit more of a recent interest in serving folks in midlife and um, I, I think it's it's something that we it's a topic we need to be talking about more um, because more people than ever across all genders are uh, you know making their way into our practice who are in that kind of midlife or, or transitional kind of phase of life um, and and I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts as to how you kind of uh, what, what piqued your interest in this in the first place and um, and your thoughts on how we can serve uh, folks who find our way find their way into our practice well as a woman who is on the other side of going through menopause and let me just say the storyline that we all hear about menopause is something you go through is a little deceptive because you're always menopausal <laughs> <laughs> i love it yes. it's like that's not like you have a party on the other side. It just gets easier. It just kind of gets a little easier. So anyway, as a person who's been through that myself, and of course I see clients who are in this age group and I receive questions from colleagues because they know that I am in this age group. And it's very frustrating that I can't offer very much when it comes to resources. I feel like like Instagram accounts and podcasts and things that I can just make a list of for everybody else. Mm. I can't come up with as much. So if this is something I feel like I need to be finding and perhaps offering myself. So I'm starting to think about and I'm doing some writing about what this means. What, what does this mean for me? And I feel like I have to be authentic in what I'm offering and what's starting to come up for me is that it's not so bad. Menopause is just not so bad. I feel like that like, we're all like bracing. And I think that's because of the, the patriarchy, you know, like women are valued because they're sexual and women are valued for their mothering. And then when you're no longer necessarily sexually viable as seen by, you know, the, the misogynistic culture or you're no longer in the childbearing years, what's your worth? Mm. You know, and, and I feel like there's a whole nother way to look at this. 
And I have actually, what I've been thinking about is, well, what was I like before I started having a period? What was my life like? Who was I before I became, you know, childbearing years? I mean, that's kind of weird now to think about, like, just when you're sexually viable, like, actually now that's, what, 11 or something? Mm -hmm. I don't even know what the average age is, maybe even younger than that. But who was I then and who am I now and how similar those two people are? It's very exciting to me to think about like something starts to happen and you can easily get off your own course, you know, much more interested in or much more vulnerable to um, being interested in what other people think about your appearance and who you are in the world. And I think that falls away. That's not there when you're a little girl and that's not there when you're postmenopausal to nearly the same degree. So there's a huge freedom and I just feel like preaching to the world, the thing that you, that is the most brilliant and scintillating and stimulating about you is your authentic self. That's, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're having a period or not. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Absolutely. It doesn't matter what your body's like. It just is the least interesting thing. So I, I'm getting really like energized by these thoughts. But my writing and my reading is just, there's a lot of juiciness there. I can tell. So, I yeah, can tell. So, yeah, this is building. going on. Yeah, <laughs> something's going, going on. on. <laughs> so, um, Deb, what might be some ways that that we can support our clients who are um, traversing this particular age group or this particular part of their life? Given that you know menopause, it can be a bit of a moving target. It's not in the you know it's not necessarily between say um, right. you know fifty and fifty five. It can be. Right. Quite quite a lot younger and then also right. older as well. So I think it would right. be um, unwise of us to kind of pigeonhole people within a certain age group because it's not how this works. Um, no. But, you know, in saying that, so how, um, how can, do you think we be, how can we do better at, at, um, at serving and understanding um, women and femmes in this particular um, age group or, or um, period of life, I should say? Sorry about the pun. <laughs> <laughs> I think that remembering all of the difficulties it takes, I think it takes more effort for a woman or a, even, and it doesn't really matter the gender actually, to come into our offices at this time in life. There's so much pressure and there's less support available. There's, there are more responsibilities and less support for the effort of their work with recovery. Mm -hmm. I think it's much harder for them to step into the door. Mm -hmm. So we probably need to do more about letting people know that it's never too late, that there's always possibility for change. We probably need to be doing better about, you know, making this is a conversation that's not just about, you know, the typical, what we perceive to be the typical client with an eating disorder. We probably need to be a lot louder about that 
And then once they're there, being respectful of, you know, how, how much they have going on in their lives. Mm-hmm. And I personally want to drop the medicalization of menopause big time. Mm-hmm. I feel like that makes everybody frightened. And the way that people typically experience their conversations and the, the health experience in their physician's offices, you know, it's, it's all medicalized. So it's all the, I mean, the word vaginal atrophy, I just got to say, can we find another word? Oh, wow. I, can I just say for a second, I have never heard those two words put together what? in the same sentence. Oh, see, this is the problem. Oh. This is the problem. We're not talking about it. We're not talking wow. about this at all. I mean, B, you're right there. You're right there. And you've never heard that. No, I have never. That's amazing to me. I, I just feel like the medical way it's medicalized, that the, these conversations are the conversations that you start to have. Right. And like, really? I feel like there's another way to talk. That feels like it's from a patriarchal perspective. It's like, your vagina is no longer what we think it should be for penetration. Is that what you mean? Yes. I'm sorry. Way too real too fast. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. This is all okay. good. No, we go, we go into all layers. Okay. No, it sounded okay. to me like your vagina is dying. That's what that says to me. <laughs> it's like it's all about is it capable of penetration anymore? I mean, it feels oh, like it's that yeah, right. I think there's a whole other way to talk about this. So obviously this is something I'm really starting to think about and trying to find other ways. So I also mentioned to you before we started that I'm on fire about this new book, Flash Count Diary, Menopause and the Vindication of Natural Life. And I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, Darcy Steinke, S-T-E-I-N-K-E. It's fabulous. It's absolutely fabulous. So can you give us a, a little bit of a synopsis of the book, Deb? I don't know if I can because she has, this is also a very creative book in that there's part memoir, part quotation, part conversation about what happens to whales when they go through menopause. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> because males, uh, whales know how to do it. They um, live, this particular killer whale lives I'll have to remember what it was. It was the Southern something. I'm sorry. I can't remember exactly what it was, but they lived like 102, 103. And in their postmenopausal years, they're like leaders and they're revered and they live very happily way past childbearing. So she was really, she was really fantasizing about being a whale. It's, oh, a, yes. quite a, <laughs> it's quite a mix of different kinds of, I guess it's a memoir, but it's such a mix of many things. Oh, it it's, sounds wonderful. It's a beautiful read, yes, and very powerful, and obviously has me thinking about things very differently. Absolutely. We so need this. I mean, there's so few mm-hmm. opportunities to mm-hmm. talk about this. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you, very worldly woman, have not heard vaginal atrophy is blowing my mind. No, I don't know whether to be impressed or overwhelmed by those words. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm kind of stuck. 
Well, it's medical. It's, it's, right. it's, you I know, know. it's a clinical God. medical way of talking about women's bodies as right. they age. Again. I think problematic. Absolutely. Well, a woman's body, I mean, bodies in general, but particularly women's bodies, and then particularly even more so kind of the more marginalized identity that we, um, that we hold, it's almost like the more pathologized, the more medicalized, the more depersonalized and dehumanized our bodies are described as. It feels like that. So maybe perhaps one very powerful way, you know, in our own practice is that we, um, you know, really focus and attend to the language that we are using about, about people's bodies in our letter writing, yeah. in our communication, and to people yeah. as well. And trying to empower and find to do a frame shift around the opening, the possibilities, the, the hopefulness. It can be an absolute, I mean, aging can become a very freeing time. This is something that I think we need a lot of work on, right? I mean, it's, menopause is a time stamp. It's like you were headed into the latter part of your life. That's the truth. That is the, the reality. So how do, you, how do you work with that reality? Perhaps there's loss. Perhaps there's like an opening. Mm -hmm. So how we speak to our clients, you know, in a, in a way that's enlivening and inviting and empowering and helping them not be so focused on trying to keep the body that they had when they were younger, which is what I think is typically walking into my office. And when I look at Instagram accounts that are about aging, that's what they're about. And that's why I get so frustrated because those accounts are more opportunities to sell products when people are vulnerable. Like uh, this is happening to me. Help me grab hold of the reins and stop anti-aging mm -hmm. anti-aging <laughs> like take take me back in time and i think that's what we can offer differently yes. we have to we have to do a very definite like well let's get curious about that what does that really mean anti-aging what is what is what is vaginal atrophy really about so I'm a feminist and I think everybody knows I'm a feminist when they walk into my office you know, there are some people that may be um, a little bit put off by that. So I'll have to work with that a little bit maybe. Yeah. Is it, is it a giveaway that you've got a cushion that says I am a feminist on your couch? <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Is it not that? No, no, I do have lots of things. So this is, you know, a, a body positive zone and those kinds of signs, but no, I don't have a, I'm a feminist cushion. Oh, so it's not I, that over. <laughs> I was only joking by the way. <laughs> Maybe I've given you a, given you a new um, decorating. No. There, Deb. Well, certainly, you know, there are lots of t-shirts I could wear. Right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really interesting actually, because, um, you know, how we how we speak about a name feminism in our work is actually, I find it really interesting in the, it, when we're working with bodies, our own bodies and other bodies in the room and the intersection of that. And, um, you know, to, to not be aware of how feminist discourse um, weaves its way through our work. Um, you know, it's, it's just really interesting, I think. 
Well, I many times ask questions about how my clients feel about feminism, you know, before I start down a certain path. Mm -hmm. And it's always interesting what kind of reactions I get. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, some people perceive anger. And that's another part of menopause, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) You become more familiar with your angry part. Is that right? Yes, I think irritability and anger, you know, the fieriness that comes with a hot flash. There's, there are so many metaphors Mm -hmm. and I feel like there is, you know, you're burning off the inauthentic, Mm -hmm. you're you're burning off the patriarchal bullshit. Yes, ma'am. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) ma'am. Oh, I do like talking to you, Fee. I knew I would. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting talking, speaking with you, Deb, because I've, I'm, I have had this sense, um, yesterday it started. Um, I've, uh, so one of the, so one of two of the eight limbs of yoga are what's called the yamas and niyamas, yeah. uh, which is essentially kind of values and ethics, how we, how we wish mm-hmm. to show up um, mm-hmm. for ourselves and how we wish to show up in the world. Um, mm-hmm. and one of those is <laughs> called tapas. Um, and, and I have been feeling, um, a whole bunch of tapas mm-hmm. yesterday and today, huh. and it's, um, it's bubbling away there. So, um, huh. yes. Um, I, I'm feeling That's it right now. Thought. Yeah, really yeah, I'm really thought. getting this sense of um, of fieriness right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> tapas is well, fire. Wanna, that's something that I really notice a lot within myself, and when I offer as a, a feminist Buddhist, <laughs> you know, and, and this particular political time in my country. You know, there's there's an awful lot of opportunity for activism and social justice and anger. And at the same time, you know, I have to have my meditation practice. I have to have my cushion to be able to withstand that and maintain um, and to be resilient within. So can I offer one little mantra that I've been working with? This is from Rachel Newman, who's another amazing teacher. I would love that. Thank you. It relates to um, the relational piece that we talked about. And it, it goes somewhat like this. All that we have is each other. All that we have is this moment. This moment is full of wonder. I love that. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. Yeah. I keep things like this handy. Well, yeah. I, well, yeah. in in the work that we do, it's yeah you know, pretty crucial to have those um, words or statements and hold those close to us to remind you know to um, to keep us grounded. I offer um, mantras and affirmations in in sessions and classes and workshops. I think it really helps. Yes. Well, speaking of that, um, would it be okay if I share one that I love with you? Please. I would love that. So I love, uh, I've got no idea where this came from, or I've got no idea if I, uh, um, 
made it into something different to how I originally read it. But it goes something like, um, may I show myself the care that I share with others? May I show myself respect as I show respect to others? May I show myself compassion as I show compassion to others? And that's often, not often, but occasionally how I will end class, um, yes. a, a yoga class before you, you know, do the namaste business. <laughs> yes. yes. That reminds beautiful. us that we're all connected. Yes. And the reminder to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That nice balance between receiving and giving. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as predicted, Deb, we could... Um, Yes. Chat for literally hours, 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 yes. hours, and hours, hours. And I do really hope that we get a chance to do that sometime in the future. Absolutely. Be, oh my goodness. I would be really thrilled with that. Yes. Yeah. I would too. Yeah, I really you appreciate so your invitation. Of course. My goodness. Yeah. Yes. We've been um, kind of chasing each other for, for years now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Deb, um, can you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about where people can find you whether that's on social media or a website where can you yeah. be located so on social media on instagram i am d l benfield rdn and on facebook i'm deborah benfield rdn ryt and just to keep it complicated my my website is body N I N mind nutrition.com. Perfect. And I'll list all those in the notes so that people can get in touch with you and can, okay. um, can follow you on social media. So again, Deb, just enormous blessings your way. Thank you so, so much for being so yeah, generous yeah. with your experience, with your wisdom, sharing your, your joy, your compassion and um, all the incredible um, elements of your work and life that you have shared. I'm just so truly grateful on behalf of our community, the community that we share and the extended world. Um, thank you so, so much. Thank you. I'm honored to be here and we'll keep talking. Sounds wonderful. Thanks, Deb. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.